Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come by, check us out, poke the tires, light the fires, whatever cliches you want. Um, this is the solo ruminant um podcast i kind of miss the days when they let me do it in my car and we could call it the smoking car but um and my friend michael graham was the first guy to coin it that but uh you know the perils of professionalization i guess uh so i'm kind of feeling like you know the shelf life on the biden press conference is going to expire soon and and i i want to get some punditry out because we recorded the dispatch podcast before the press conference um i talked a little bit about it on glop um and but we'll get to some other things too i assume i you know given my ample show prep uh i thought it was a terrible press conference i and before i get into the substance of why i thought it was a terrible press conference um um I think, you know, it, it's funny. I've been trying to figure out, you know, so Pa, John Pedoritz, my friend and uh, co-podcaster at Glop and all that, he's been saying, he was saying on Glop, he was saying on the commentary podcast, which does a very good job if you want, you know, if, if you want more bashing on the press conference than I provide here, uh, the one from uh, Thursday, I guess, uh, has ample um and you know, Pod, I who I respect immensely, even though I like giving him a hard time, um, he says it was the worst presidential press conference in American history. It was, you know, um, without peer and all this kind of stuff. And I get where he's coming from, and there's probably some hyperbole in there too, and all that. But I gotta say, I still think that some of Trump's press conferences were worse. But one of the it's it's but it's actually a hard thing to explain to you know, because first of all, um, anytime I say anything like that, I'll get accused of Trump derangement syndrome or whatever and all that kind of stuff. But I think that one of the defenses, one of the weird sort of asymmetry things here is we judge Joe Biden by normal political standards. And by normal political standards, that might have been the worst press conference um, ever, certainly the worst one I've ever seen. And Trump benefits from uh, the soft bigotry of no expectations kind of thing. And so when he does his, you know, escape monkey from a cocaine study act uh, during the press conferences for the, for the, in the early part of the pandemic, um, um, we just don't expect him to actually have a grasp of the facts or any of that kind of thing. Um, we expect him to be totally self-absorbed or expected, I should say, totally self-absorbed and narcissistic and, um, you know, and, and violating all sorts of like the norms of, of presidential conduct and self-serving behavior and all the rest. And we just apply a different standard to Joe Biden. And so in some ways, Biden suffers from uh, the expectation that he should act like a normal president. And it just, I'm not, I get why people might push back from a dozen different directions about this point. All I'm saying is like, Trump really was sui generis as president, and it's very difficult to do apples to apples comparisons on a lot of things. Um, um, so putting that aside, I think that the, uh, just on, the, oh, just one other thing, like, 
please just don't email me with the what about Trump stuff. You know, uh, the point I made when, you know, I got for four years, I got people saying, well, what about Obama? You know, um, when I criticized Trump and, and I was like, look, as JFK said, you only have one president at a time. And for people in my line of work, uh, you know, it, we're not the equivalent of your uh, dorm, you know, roommate where you're having sort of fairly abstract arguments about, you know, whose favorite politicians are better or worse or who's hypocritical or stuff. This is the guy with the nuclear codes. This is the guy who's running the country. This is I shouldn't say he's running the country. Presidents do not run the country. Um, he's the one running the executive branch. Um, and he's the commander in chief. And you can say, what about Trump all day long? I don't consider him the gold standard of presidential conduct. And this actually gets to a, a, an argument I had for, for years prior to Trump's election and after with a lot of prominent conservatives whose names I would love to drop, but some of them were in off the record settings, who would tell me at various times that, um, you know, the, the, the only serious standard one could have about Trump was, is he better than Hillary? And or is he better than Obama? But really, it was is he better than Hillary? Where the one was the one that really would infuriate me. And I I get the argument when he was running for president, but after he's president, the idea that conservatives, never mind National Review conservatives, should judge an incumbent Republican president by whether or not he is better than the Democratic opponent he defeated was I just thought a complete capitulation to power worship. And I can quote you chapter and verse on prominent conservatives who have said that kind, who made that argument um, to my face. And um, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, uh, whether you think Biden was is much better than Trump, worse than Trump, uh, apples to oranges, it doesn't really matter. He's the guy who's president right now. And so in my line of work, you tell the truth about the people who matter, you know, and the president always matters. So with that said, I thought it was a really, really uh, craptacular um, uh, press conference. Um, I don't even I mean, like so like let's start with the minor incursion thing, because I think that's uh, the most interesting one. Um, I think, you know, so he said if it's a just a minor incursion into Ukraine. If Putin only invades a little bit, um, you know, our response will be one thing, but if he does a full blown invasion, our response will be another thing. Um, this was a disastrous thing to say, and it doesn't matter whether you think I'm being partisan or conservative or unfair to him. Uh, my interpretation lines up almost perfectly with the Ukrainian interpretation of that comment. Um, and the fact that the Biden uh, administration had to walk it back and clean it up suggests that the people who criticized that in real time, and I was one of them, were right that it was a hot mess. And I think everybody can kind of acknowledge that. Um, but it also, I mean, so what's interesting about it is, first of all, as a, as a psychological matter, and he did this throughout the press conference, Biden basically um, read his stage direction out loud. Right. He just sort of um, dumped his th thinking about this stuff out into the public in ways that I think are pretty dangerous and pretty dumb. I mean, forget the substance of what he's saying. He's just like, you know, what is it? You know, uh, the Godfather says never, you know, let outsiders know what you're thinking. Um, like he's not supposed to. Um, reveal how it, the various responses to various hypotheticals on the world stage like that. And he did that in a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different times. But also I think it's like, I, I got, look, I think it's not fine, but you know, it's acceptable that the white house cleaned it up. They were emphatic Biden's follow-up, you know, statement, which he read from a piece of paper because clearly uh, you know, his staff felt it was vital that he not ad lib anything. 
Um, I thought that statement was good. An invasion is an invasion is an invasion. That's all fine. The thing I think is sort of really fascinating about this is that um, it's still, with all the cleanup, even if Putin believes Biden um, and has, has taken these new warnings to heart and the cleanup operation to heart, he still gave, Biden still gave a weapon to Putin here because it doesn't, you know, let's say now that Putin does do a minor incursion, right? He sends green men in um, the way he did in 2014, um, the way he did in, was it 2008 in Georgia? You know, that was one of the weird things as Biden said, you know, this would be the first time since World War II that a state has, you know, violated the borders of another country like this in Europe. And Russia's already done it twice. Um, it seized Crimea in 2014. It played those games with that, those games with with Georgia and took territory away from Georgia. Um, but be that as it may, that's fine. Uh, people forget things. Um, uh, he's still given a weapon that will hurt him and America um, in this way, right? So let's say that Putin goes in and does a minor incursion thing, and um, the response from people uh, from let's put it this way the response from the president's political opponents whether it's fair or not is a completely different issue for the moment um we'll say biden invited this i mean if you don't think that the primetime fox people lindsey graham tom cotton ted cruz um if you don't think all of them will say if putin does a quote-unquote minor incursion that this aggression was invited by our feckless president of the United States, then you just haven't been paying attention to politics or not uh, at all. And I think there are there are fair ways to make that criticism and there are unfair ways to make that criticism. But it doesn't matter because what Putin did is basically, or what Biden did is basically create um, a scenario that did not exist before, which will give partisan ammo um, really great partisan ammo to um, Biden's domestic political opponents to say that this, you know, that that Putin's actions were Biden's fault. And one of the things that Putin likes very much to do is sow discord um, in other countries, particularly in America, but not just America. I mean, he's actually probably done worse things in the Baltics and in Eastern Europe and certainly Ukraine. But you know, this, that's his mo. That's the Russian bots mo right is to fuel um culture war partisan discord distrust you know they put lots of propaganda out about the vaccines all that kind of stuff and this gives a great talking point to the people who um want to do that for good reasons and bad and and there's no way biden can clean that up really um I mean, sure, if he had a really massive response to a minor incursion, that statement would be kind of might be kind of like backburnered or memory hold. But I, I doubt it. Um, so anyway, like. I think. The whole. Um, oh, so one last thing on Putin, it's not really about the Biden thing, but I remember when. So I actually think Biden is right in some of his analysis that he just, you know, spilled out there, I think it would actually be a terrible mistake for Putin to, to like truly invade Ukraine. Um, you know, there's this tendency in foreign policy debates and in all sorts of debates, but really in foreign policy debates for Americans to think the old adage or admonition, careful what you wish for, only applies to um, American foreign policy decision makers and not everybody else. You know, I mean, uh, our enemies that that, you know, that's a universal adage. You know, it's a universal insight is that sometimes uh, the law of un unintended consequences jumps out of the lake and bites you on the ass. And the idea that like um, every all of our opponents have perfect wisdom and foresight about how their actions will play out for them um is 
sort of ludicrous. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not positive, but I have a strong sense that Osama bin Laden, uh, you know, when he's you know taking time off from you know watching cats in hell um i mean the musical not normal cats um you know that if you asked him he would say you know things didn't actually unfold exactly as i hoped on you know september 12th uh, 2001 um and anyway so i think this would be a true disaster or could be a true disaster for putin if he invaded ukraine because I, first of all while i think he could invade it i don't think he could hold it there would be a long simmering insurgency with lots of russians coming home in body bags um lots of russians in russia don't want to kill ukrainians for in part for the reasons that you know putin thinks that ukraine belongs to russia is that they really are like kindred you know, it's a kindred people with a tightly bound up history with Russia's history. And, you know, in, in some ways, Ukraine was, you know, the capital of Russia, you know, in both literal and figurative ways for, for centuries. I'm not trying to dispute the, in, the the national independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. I'm just saying that these are very closely linked cultures and people. You know, the United States as a general proposition, probably doesn't want to go to war with the UK or with Canada or with even Mexico, in part because a lot of us um, feel various ties of common heritage, history, ethnicity um, to people in those countries. You know, it's, it's, it, these are not historic, you know, enemies in the way um, you know, like if, you know, it, anyway, you get the point. And, um, and the fact is, is that Putin's doing this out of weakness, not out of strength, all of this, right? He, he has no legacy to speak of about what he's done at home in Russia. You know, Russia's a basket case. It's sort of the sick man of Eurasia. Um, and you know, the, the society domestic russian life is not flourishing by any metric and but putin in sort of classic strongman mode um feels like if he is going to be remembered by history as doing something great for russia it pretty much has to be by stitching together the old soviet union or at least the old russian empire or at least parts of it or certainly restoring beloved ukraine um back into the fold of mother russia yada 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 and I personally think he's making this calculation that if he doesn't do it every year, he puts off trying to pull this off. Um, his position gets weaker. Russia gets weaker. Um, you know, he's in Russia is increasingly in the shadow of China. Um, and this is, this is a, sort of a desperation move. I'm not saying it's not smart or strategic or whatever. I mean, that all, all depends how you define your terms. But I, Russia's not doing this from a position of strength. Um, and I personally think that if he invaded Ukraine, it would cause NATO to unite. Um, it would cause a lot of domestic discord within Russia itself. Um, and he would not be able to hold on to Ukraine indefinitely as an occupier or a conqueror. And so I think, you know, he, he probably wants some kind of exit ramp at this point. Uh, but even if he doesn't, I just think it would be a bad thing to do. And, you know, I, I made this point on the dispatch podcast like a month ago. Um, and I remember Steve, you know, arguing, sort of arguing that I was downplaying the significance of all of this because it would be bad for Putin. I'm not downplaying the significance of this all. I think it would be terrible for the world if, if, and for America, if, if Putin did this and certainly it would be terrible for Ukraine. I just don't think, um, it's, I don't think that Putin has, has, um, a, an easy glide path to, you know, domestic or foreign policy success if he goes down this path. And, um, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to prevent this from happening. 
in part because if we let it happen even a little bit, it sends another powerful signal to China, you know, which will then do things with Taiwan, which could be disastrous. So anyway, I think it's a very serious situation. I just don't necessarily think that Putin is the genius getting, you know, trying to get away with murder according to his brilliant plan. Um, you know, lots of bank robbers have really stupid plans to rob banks. I still think we should try whenever possible to stop them from robbing banks. All right. Anyway, back to the press conference thing. Um, my favorite part might have been when he said Biden was asked about whether or not he uh, how he felt about being so unpopular and having such a low approval rating. And he barks, I don't believe the polls. And like five minutes later, <laughs> the subject of polls comes up again and he starts doing this whole convoluted thing about how, you know, one poll had him at 33%, but the average is 44, 45%. And one poll even had, um, and he was talking about himself in the third person in a very Trumpy way. And he was like, and one poll had him at, at 49%. Well, wait a second. Why are you, you know, like paying so much attention to these things you don't believe in? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't spend an enormous amount of time, you know, uh, following the theological debates of the church of Satan. Um, uh, you know, you can't go out and just blare, I don't believe in polls and then do this sort of clearly emotionally invested, um, look, here's how you're supposed to read the polls. And I'm really not as unpopular as you are. You know, you take the real clear politics average and you take it, blah, blah, blah. blah and you, you know, uh, take the, the liver of a, of a badger and the pancreas of an ox and, and sacrifice them to crom. you know, it, it just, it's just weird. I thought it was funny. Um, the other, I think, more damning stuff was, and I'm um, I'm glad to see, and I think I might have had some role in it because you know, uh, Meet the Press actually, you know, uh, credited my G file from a couple of weeks ago about his Georgia speech um, for why they focused on on exactly this point, um, and I got a lot of interesting you know, feedback from people in the press about it. Um, so I don't know, but it's, it's at the same time, it's a pretty obvious thing to bring up, you know, a year ago, Biden said in his speech, he was going to put his whole heart into unifying the country and working together and bipartisanship and solving problems for the American people and reaching across the aisle and unity, unity, to unity. As I wrote at the time, I thought the unity stuff was garbage. And, um, I mean, it's, it's nice garbage. It's nice, you know, it's, 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 um, on the, it's the kind of garbage that, you know, when you're walking past it, you're like, mm, maybe I should take that teddy bear, but, uh, it's still garbage. And I don't mean this as a criticism explicitly of Biden. I've been writing about the cult of unity for 20 years about, I've been writing about how democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement, um, about how the whole idea of, of unity is dangerous in a democracy. Um, um, but, and I'm happy to talk about that more. Um, just that unity is a form of power worship, right? It's not, there's nothing inherently good or bad about unity. Um, um, it's, it's fascistic to a certain extent in that, you know, fascism was about uh, the idea of strength in numbers. That's where the symbol, that's where the word comes from. A fascist is a bundle of sticks around the handle of an ax and it's supposed to convey strength in numbers and um, um, unity in and of itself is about strength and that's great, but it depends what you're unified around. If you're unified around uh, lynching somebody, unity is bad. You know, if, if, if you're unified around the idea that the five families should control the heroin trade, that's bad. If you're unified about how everyone has to drop what they're doing and save the little girl who fell down a well, that's great. But unity, qua unity, is neither good nor bad. It's like fire. It's a tool. You know, it can be used for good or it can be used for bad. And so I never liked the unity shtick, but it's in so ingrained into our civic discourse and all the politicians love to say it and people love to hear it and just they don't think it through and that's fine. So whatever. But he did campaign explicitly um 
saying that he after you know because he has been in the senate since the cretaceous period that he has this wonderful experience working with people across the aisle to get things done that was his part of his core pitch in the primaries is that he knows how to do this stuff because i've done it for 50 years and blah 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 and so he's asked you know about the bipartisanship and unity stuff that he promised and his response was um, uh, and particularly in the context, I should say, particularly in the context of that Georgia speech where he basically said, um, you can either be on the side of Martin Luther King or Bull Connor. And if you don't agree with me, then you're on the side of Bull Connor. Um, and, and so he, he basically said, so uh, where, where to go? Cause there are two ways to go with this. One is again, that speech was outrageous. It was indefensible. He got really, really upset with people saying that he you know, saying you're calling your political opponents racists. And his explanation was, was, was really, I mean, this was the wilted lettuce leaf in the middle of the garbage in that he was saying, um, he said, look, I wasn't saying they were Bull Connor. I was saying they were on the side of Bull Connor. Um, and I kind of get if I look, if I squint just the right way and just the right light and I stand on one foot, um, I can see his point. I can see what he's talking about. I just don't think that this is this is a particularly powerful defense of what he did. If I say, um, you know, look, you have a choice. You can either be on the side of, uh, you know, the. French resistance or Simon Wiesenthal, you know, or the, or, or the Americans, or you can be on the side of the Nazis, um, in this present struggle, uh, you can't really, it's not a really great political defense to go back and say, well, wait a second. I wasn't call. I wasn't saying if you disagree with me, you were a Nazi. I was just saying you're on the side of the Nazis. Um, and that's in fact what his his defense is, and it's just garbagey. That speech was the Georgia speech was so ill advised on so many levels, um, but we don't need to belabor that anymore. Um, but the thing I actually think is more damning, other than his, you know, argumentum ad whisperum, you know, where he just you know whenever he's like super serious, he's, I'm totally super serious, and he does these stage whispers. The other big tell he has is that whenever he's a, uh, whenever he knows he's spouting hyperbole, he says, that's not hyperbole. Um, you know, when I wrote this big piece, I think in 2012 about Biden for the NR, um, I went through, I did a Nexus Lexus search of every time Biden talked about, uh, used the word literally when he meant figuratively. And my favorite times where he would say things like, Look, that's not hyperbole. I'm not speaking figuratively here. I, when I say literally, I mean literally. You are the keystone of the African continent, or you are, I, you are literally the saviors of America. And like, I get, you know, look, I'll do praise and honor to John McWhorter for, you know, his argument that these words grow in meaning, and I get it, and that's fine, and yada yada yada. But when you explicitly say you know the meaning, you know the difference between the literal meanings of words, and you emphasize and tee up the fact that you know it and that you're going to use literally to mean literally, and then you use it figuratively, it's something really special. I mean, you deserve, you know, an extra scoop of ice cream at the home when you do something like that. Anyway, um, what I found sort of fascinating was his argument that um, he couldn't work on bipartisanship. Um, um, actually, I think I have the quote here. You know, he was asking about Mitt Romney, who, again, he had said was on the side of Bull Connor for disagreeing with him. And Mitt Romney had said that Biden hadn't even called him to ask him what he could vote for. Um, and part of Biden's response was, well, I like Mitt. Look, Mitt Romney's a straight guy. He's, and one of the things we're doing, I was trying to make sure we got everybody on the same page in my party on this score. And so I didn't call many Republicans at all. Now, I could have sworn when I was watching the press conference, he said any Republicans 
at all. But I'm going to trust that the White House transcript got that right. Um, here's the thing. The whole point of bipartisanship means that you are willing to trade the votes of your of the fringier parts of your base for the votes of the more moderate and centrist members of the other party. The idea that Biden couldn't engage in any outreach, meaningful outreach of a bipartisan nature with Republicans unless he locked down everybody in his own party first means that he doesn't actually understand how bipartisanship works. Um, you know, the whole idea is that you're going to, sure, we'll lose Bernie Sanders, but if we lose Bernie Sanders, we might get Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, um, Lisa Murkowski, you can go down a long list. And the whole point of, of, of bipartisanship as a serious political project is figuring out a compromise that gets you more votes from the other party than you lose from your own. And the idea that somehow you can't even call Mitt Romney and feel him out on what could pass is like a perfect example of making perfect the enemy of the good, right? It is a, and, and the, which again is so central to the dysfunction of both parties. And I think I brought this up on the Dispatch podcast where I, you know, you know, there was that line from Jim DeMint when he was still in the Senate, but almost going to Heritage, or I can't remember the timing. Um, and, uh, and he, the, the basic formulation that it boiled down to um, was he was so sick of the rhinos in the GOP that he would rather have 30 solid conservatives um, than 60 um, squishy Republicans. And like, I wouldn't want, particularly not in 2012 or whenever it was, he said that 60 squishy Republicans. But if I had 30 solid conservatives, I would dearly love to have 20 or 30 more uh, less than perfect conservatives to make me the majority in the Senate. Um, the idea that somehow uh, you cannot abandon any of your policy positions um, or al allow anybody else to abandon their po uh, the party's policy, the base of the party's policy positions um, for the sake of getting members of your party elected in states where they otherwise would lose is just so unbelievably juvenile and dysfunctional. Um, you know, uh, if you're a Republican, I totally like Arlen Specter was a force for evil. He was a terrible person, mean person, um, you know, disgraceful person. I, I could not stand Arlen Specter. But if you're a Republican, a conservative Republican, if the difference between being the minority party in the Senate and being the majority party in the Senate is supporting Arlen Specter for a uh, senator from Pennsylvania, you're an idiot if you're not supporting Arlen Specter. Um, you want more Republicans. And the one thing you expect from every, the only pure, absolute, concrete, no exceptions litmus test that everybody has to follow is that if you're a Republican, you have to vote for a Republican for the majority leader. Everything else is a negotiation. Now, as a conservative, I can come up with all sorts of other litmus tests that I would want Republicans to stick with. But if you're a serious politician, serious political thinker of any kind, all you want as a baked in mandatory thing is for the purpose to say they're going to caucus with Republicans. And then everything else is a negotiation. The way that the Democrats are responding to Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, I find I find legitimately hilarious. Um, you know, like they're they're real first of all, they're not up for the real election, I don't think. I mean certainly Manchin's not, but they're talking about um primarying Joe Manchin. Um, you know, and we all know Trump won that state by 39 points. Manchin's the most popular um, politician in that state. If Joe Manchin is voted, is loses a primary, first of all, he could probably run as a Democrat, depending on what the laws in West Virginia are. I mean, he could probably run as an independent, depending on what the laws in West Virginia are. But barring that, 
you're just saying you would rather have a Republican in that West Virginia Senate seat than continue to have Joe Manchin in it. And I get it as a psychological thing. I get it as sort of like we can't dilute our brand and blah, 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 or we can't be associated with people, but like that we disagree with. But that's all stupid and self indulgent nonsense as a political matter. And so, when anyway, but when Biden says, you know, he didn't even bother to call people like Mitt Romney to figure out what kind of legislation they should get with. He just basically revealed that that he doesn't, in fact, either I shouldn't say doesn't know he either doesn't know or doesn't want to do the kind of things that got him elected. And again, I, you know, I wrote a year ago how you should be like Eisenhower. I think this is one of the most blown political opportunities in American political history. He could have been the avuncular grandfather who only comes out every now and then to say, you kids keep that down, um, or to settle questions. He could have been, you know, uh, you know, in the shadows, kind of like America's grandpa who took, who did not act as if he was the prime minister of the Democratic Party and had to do whatever the Democratic Party wanted. But he got uh, spun up with this whole transformative FDR nonsense, which was a direct contradiction of how he ran. It was a direct contradiction of what voters said they wanted in the aggregate. You know, when no Republican members of the House lose, um, um, which I think is right, uh, and the Republicans actually gain seats in the same election that elected Joe Biden, it doesn't mean the election was rigged the way Donald Trump says. It does mean that there is not this groundswell of support for a new New Deal or a new great society. And I, 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 I sometimes I feel really frustrated that this is seen as some sort of either partisan or deeply insightful argument when it is like one of the most friggin' obvious things about American politics I can think of. Um, and it's just weird that people think that like either this is a very contentious observation or it's a very partisan observation or, huh, I hadn't thought of that. I don't know which response is more damning. But FDR's agenda was popular. That's why he had all of those senators in this, his party in the Senate and in the House. Go look at those numbers on Wikipedia. They are astounding. The kind of supermajorities that FDR enjoyed. Um, he had so much wiggle room around the filibuster, around everything, because what he was doing was broadly popular. I wish it hadn't been a lot of it, but that's just the fact similarly i mean lbj was less popular than 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 fdr but that's you know that's not a huge indictment and he still had massive advantages um in the senate and the house particularly on the issues that mattered to him which did have a lot of bipartisan appeal biden has just misread the landscape in whole and it's just sort of astounding to me that people can't see it um there were other ridiculous like i don't believe any of his numbers about you know uh, how full the shelves are i mean this is one of the one of the i think sort of a fascinating things about the current moment i think that one of the things we didn't appreciate about much of the last 25 years with the exception of the financial crisis which i think was a really huge huge deal um but a lot of our politics um, our culture war fights, all of these kinds of things. I'm not saying they weren't real. I, I think the culture war is real and, 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 you know, and I've taken the right side on it, um, on a vast, on the vast majority of issues, but, um, most of them were just sort of political conflicts of choice. Um, because most people were not all that engaged in politics. Um, again, the financial crisis changed that because you had, you know, uh, it created the Tea Party movement. It created or fueled in some ways the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, and it and the housing crisis and the financial crisis for actual human beings informed our politics in all sorts of ways. But beyond that, a lot of the culture war stuff was just for the people who are like really engaged in politics, who follow this stuff closely, you know, um, um who are cable news addicts and into the um, um, 
you know, the symbolic warfare, even, and I, 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 I say this with some trepidation because the Iraq war was a real thing. The war on terror was a real thing too. But one point that I think people, a lot of people on the right and the left are right about is that for a lot of people, the Iran, the Iraq war and the war on terror in general were fairly abstract because most people haven't served in the military. Most people's kids aren't in the military. It's an all volunteer force. Um, most of the people in the military don't actually see combat. Um, and so it was very antiseptic compared to previous wars. Um, and, and so a lot, a lot of the political arguments about these things were, had a certain amount of sort of literary or abstract, um, disengagement with personal experience. Um, and obviously there are exceptions to all that, but, um, the pernicious thing about things like inflation and crime um, and, and, and supply chain shortages is you cannot tell people these aren't problems because they know they're problems, right? These are things, these are political issues. And, the, and I think the school stuff was a big part of this too. You know, you can, you can say, oh, these are champagne problems or, you know, you don't understand the numbers or all that kind of stuff. And sometimes that works in our politics. But when your experience sharply differs from whatever numbers you're prattling about, you're going to go with your own experience, right? You're going to go with what you see with your own eyes, what you see with your own, you know, checkbook. And, and so, one of the problems that you know Biden put on display there was just he 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 was trying to tell people don't believe your lying eyes and he was trying to tell people i've done nothing wrong i mean i, I you know i don't i don't know what the actual number of school closures are i don't know what the actual supply chain you know like what percentage rate of shelves are full um i, I also don't know where he gets those numbers from i would love for the white house to offer some clarification on that I just do know that I talk to people all the time and I have my own and, and their experience mirrors my own. It's hard to get a test. It's hard to get, um, you know, I, 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 I spent three weeks looking to buy heavy cream um, and I finally got some this morning. But like every place, five different stores that I've been to just don't have heavy cream. Um, you know, milk is hard to come by. Uh, you know, you, you you can't have those kinds of personal experiences and then say, Oh, well I, and then, and have all your friends, um, confirm them. And then just say, some politician says, well, that's, you know, that's not really a problem. Um, and I think this is the real enduring challenge for the Biden administration, which he is not up to speed enough to deal with is that messaging messaging works when politics are kind of these abstract arguments or messaging can work. Sometimes messaging is disastrous, but you can talk about, you know, what words you use and all that kind of stuff when, um, and how you, you know, you spin things and all that when, uh, people's personal lives actually don't intersect with, you know, uh, obvious political concerns, but when people actually when the real lived reality of voters is different from what politicians are going to say, no amount of messaging is going to fix it. It just doesn't work that way. And, and that's, what's so pernicious about things like inflation and product shortages and labor shortages and, and school closures and all the rest is that people just don't, you know, if, if it's happening in your life, you're not going to, you're not going to believe any of the numbers because that's just not how our brains work. And the nor in this case, should it be? Oh, one thing about the, I know people are sick of me talking about the voting stuff and I got to tell you, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to whine and I don't want to like elevate, you know, insults and all that kind of stuff. I, I find that some of the comments on some of the things I've written in the last couple of weeks, just grossly unfair and inaccurate, um, and are based upon the sort of partisan, um, obsessions of, of some of the commenters and do not actually reflect the things I write, never mind the things I believe. And the only reason I get pissed off about this is like, um, I kind of feel like at this point I'm, I am open to all, all manner of criticisms. Um, and you know, and some have more bite than others and some, you know, you know, I would dispute more than others, but 
Like I am far from perfect and I don't know anybody who could ever say that I claim that otherwise, nor am I infallible or anything like that. But um, given how I've conducted myself over the last five years or so, um, I really don't think you can justifiably accuse me of being a partisan hack or of arguing in bad faith or simply saying things that I don't believe. I've paid, I don't want, again, I'm not a martyr. I don't, I, this isn't a self-pity thing, but I've just paid a, a real price in terms of friendships, in terms of money, um, in terms of, you know, uh, career stuff, um, all sorts of relationships, because I refuse to, to say things I didn't believe to be true. Um, and because I refuse to sort of play as sort of, you know, the emperor has no clothes thing. And I'm not saying that everybody I disagreed with was lying or whatever. All I'm saying is, is that, and I know, in fact, I know they weren't, but all I'm saying is that I, I paid a price for sticking to my guns on saying what I believe to be true and, um, and not being a partisan cheerleader and just getting with the team and getting with the program. So if I write something these days that you disagree with, by all means, disagree with me. But if you leap to the explanation for why you disagree with why you think I'm wrong, because I am carrying water for the GOP, or because I'm some sort of partisan hack, or I am just deliberately saying untrue things for clicks or whatnot, then that is a cell phone on your part. That is damning of your position, not of mine. And I give it no credence whatsoever. And I just, I just bring this up because I've been getting a lot of this stuff lately. And I think I should stop responding to it in the comments because I think that's not a good look. But um, I just want to be clear about that. And I do think it's interesting. I get far less of that kind of crap from listeners of The Remnant than I do from readers of the G-File. And someone else can explain that sociology to me sometime. But how do they get it? Oh, so on this voting stuff, um, you know, I was saying before about how messaging matters and all that kind of stuff. Here's just a little thought experiment for people. And this is not my mandatory voting uh, thought experiment, which I wrote up last week um, or this week. Um, it's a different thought experiment. Uh, imagine how much sillier or less persuasive or, or you know, uh, Biden's rhetoric, Democratic rhetoric, uh, cable news, liberal cable news talking head rhetoric would be if instead of calling these things, the, the, the two pieces of legislation that they wanted to destroy the filibuster to pass the for the people thing and the John Lewis thing. Imagine if they said they weren't voting rights bills. They were uh, convenience of voting bills, right? Because, and I, 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 I will argue to I'm blue in the face, that's a more apt description of what they are. Um, they are about either making voting easier or keeping voting as easy as it has, was made during uh, the pandemic. Um, there's some other things going on too. I mean, um, uh, the you know the the reauthorization of the preclearance stuff with the uh, Voting Rights Act, which is another example of of misleading messaging. I cannot tell you. I, I mean, I pay attention to it really closely now. Whenever I hear people talking about the threat to democracy, where they say you know Republicans won't even reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, they make it sound, and you see this in print, you see this all over the place. They make it sound like the Voting Rights Act is no longer the law of the land. Um, and that's not what reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act is about. The Voting Rights Act is this big, massive thing, very successful civil rights thing. I asked my friend uh, Bob Dishkel to write a piece for us about it, and he did, and it was great. Um, you know, the Voting Rights Act is the law of the land. And there's not a single Republican in America I am aware of, including Donald Trump, um, who has proposed repealing the Voting Rights Act. So when you hear, you know, people of goodwill and bad saying 
how outrageous, including Biden in his press conference, how outrageous it is that Republicans won't reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. Keep in mind, they're not talking about reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. They're talking about reauthorizing one small, largely outdated part of it having to do with pre-clearance of voting procedures in various districts. And, you know, the reason the Supreme Court threw that out is that the old formula was really outdated and bad. I'm open to, you know, arguments about fixing the formula and reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act. I'm also open to the argument that it's not necessary. You know, I remember when this came up in 2013, when it went to the Supreme Court, you know, you had places in New Hampshire that had to jump through all of these hoops to get clearance from, you know, a Department of Justice for their own elections. And, you know, and the, 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 the reasons for this, you know, clearance stuff are often like really abstract and, and, and picayune and, and granular that, you know, I just don't think are necessarily necessary. Um, but anyway, on the voting rights stuff, like, as far as I can tell, there's very little in the, you know, the there's very little threat to voting rights in America right now. You know, you, you people talk about, well, what, you know, what about, you know, you know, getting rid of these drop boxes? Well, first of all, if the drop boxes were only put in there during the pandemic, I see no like first order compelling argument about how it is an assault on democracy to say after the pandemic, they shouldn't be there anymore. At the same time, I don't think it's all that terrible if they stay there. I mean, I think it's fine if they stay. That's the part of the problem is that so much of this stuff is such small, uh, small ball stuff. And so getting rid of them is, I'm hoping the argument is bad, but I'm also, or unnecessary, but um, it is also not a threat to democracy in part because you know why? Because when you have like 17 days, as I think Georgia does, of early voting by mail permissible, you know what counts as a drop box? Mailboxes. And the idea that somehow, uh, you know, it is you're on the side of Jim Crow and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis if you think you don't need those drop boxes anymore, or if you think that the proposal from some Democrats for ballot harvesting um, are ill-advised and prone to corruption. Um, like, I just don't think it, the analogy works. But the press uncritically talks about these, I mean, every single day, every single write-up of these bills, they're just simply described as voting rights bills. And like, you might prefer that term, that's fine. But like, if they were called more accurately uh, convenience of voting bills, and then you're saying, you know, you're on the side of Bull Connor if you disagree with me, um, it wouldn't work. And I think an enormous number of people, including a lot of my critics, have been way too uh, conditioned by the framing of these arguments as, you know, as, as, a direct assault on democracy. And I am not defending the Trumpists and weirdos and QAnon types who are trying to take over, you know, voting procedures. I agree with a lot of the stuff that Biden says about how those people need to be, you know, uh, you know, countered by, you know, making, you know, I, I'd be in favor of legislation that, you know, at least on the state level, I still think elections should be run by states that made it very, very difficult for political hacks of the left or the right to overrule the, the counts of apolitical um, career election officials. I think that's all correct and right. My only point, which people keep accusing me of like minimizing or siding with Trump on this stuff, I think my record's pretty clear about not siding with Trump on this stuff. Um, my only point is, is that if you run for office and you get elected, um, saying that the election of these people is proof of um, the end of democracy is just a complicated argument. And in a democracy, pri you know, we don't have, um, you know, sort of like in minority po 
report. We don't have a department of pre-crime for anything, never mind for election fraud. So if you're elected and you've done nothing illegal or fraudulent or corrupt yet, I don't really understand what what we can do about this except keep a close eye on them and put massive pressure on keeping them from from breaking the law. And if you do break the law about any of this stuff, including I wish that these people with the false elector, you know, slates, I think they should go to jail, you know, assuming that there are laws on the books that can put them in jail because that's that's, that was an attempted coup and it's outrageous. Um, And the people making apologies for it and making apologies for the people making apologies for it should be ashamed of themselves. Um, It's heartbreaking to me how many people on the right um, play these games of footsie with the idea that it was okay for the president of the United States to perform an auto coup. And I wish there was more stigma that applied to all of these people. I wish that everybody who went along with the reject some of the electors plan in, um, in 2020 were announcing their retirements because it was just so obvious that no voter of good sound mind and good conscience would vote to reelect any of them. But that's not the country that we live in. Um, and, and for the record, that would be very bad for some of my friends. Um, um, I should say friends, uh, it would be bad for some people I'm friendly with who hold elected office, who made really bad decisions. I would argue shameful decisions. All right. So let's move on from all this stuff. Um, I really enjoyed both podcasts this week. I highly recommend both of them. If you're not interested in the issue of homelessness and crime, um, particularly in San Francisco or big cities generally, I still recommend the the Michael Schellenberger podcast because uh, at the you know, but at the end, I just switched gears and I talked to him about nuclear power, and he went on I don't know a nine minute sort of debrief about nuclear power, the state of nuclear power, and and all that kind of stuff. That was extremely useful. You know, it's very difficult to find in sort of normal mainstream press reports what's going on with nuclear power, why is it expensive, why is it delayed, all that kind of stuff. He did a really, really good job at that. I mean, the first part of it I thought was really interesting, too. I'm just saying, if you're not interested in that stuff, either fast forward or stick around for the for the nuclear thing. The one thing I did want to ask him, I do this, I was telling Ryan before we started recording, um... I do this to myself all the time because I don't like having like big piles of notes um, because I like to actually have a conversation. And if you're just looking at your notes or looking at trying to queue up your next question, you're not really listening to what they say. And I, I, I like to think that that's maybe one of the selling points of the remnant is that I actually listen to what people say and I have conversations with them. Um, but maybe not, you know, maybe lots of people do that. I'm just talking about my own experience regardless one of the downsides is I often forget to ask like the big questions that I want to ask. And, um, I've done that twice now on the episodes we, where we talked about homelessness where I didn't ask just the basic question. Um, Hey, so if there's a guy begging in the street, homeless guy begging in the street, do you think you should give him money? Um, not knowing anything about not knowing whether he's a substance abuse problem or anything else. Um, I was just reading the other day, someone was, um, oh God, it was some anecdote about some famous Brit who gave a, I think a Brit, someone will remind me because maybe it was, I don't remember where I saw it. Anyway, somebody famous was walking with a friend and there was a panhandler um, and asked for money and the guy reaches into his pocket and gives him a whole wad of money and his friend says, you know, he's just going to spend that on booze. And the guy says, what do you think I was going to spend it on? Um, anyway, I, I, you know, the guy from the, from the Manhattan Institute, I forgot to ask him that. And I also forgot to ask Schellenberger that the other thing that I didn't bring up with Schellenberger that I wish I had, look, I, if you've been reading me, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the sort of political religion stuff and the woke aristocracy stuff and new class stuff and, Um, I find the new class arguments, not managerial class, whatever, you know, there's a bunch of different labels for basically the same theory. Um, um, you know, I'm fascinated with that stuff, write a lot about it in suicide, the West and elsewhere. And so I'm sympathetic with a lot of his arguments along those lines, but you know, there's also just a more practical question that I forgot to ask him about, which is that 
how to put it, um, a lot of the problems that these big cities have, have, I would argue, yes, again, I've stipulated, a lot of it has to do with sort of woke and progressive policies that are based upon a utopia, utopian understanding of human nature that want to disregard the, the, the basic facts of life, the bits of reality that mug you to turn you in the neoconservative direction, yada, yada, yada. All that's true, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to endorse all of those arguments to one extent or another. But there's another part of it, you know, like, which is, you know, and it's important, you know, monocausal explanations are always flawed. Um, so there's another explanation that I think is an important part of the equation too, which is just simply that unified partisan or party control of any city over time becomes dysfunctional and corrupt. And it's difficult for us to do an apples to apples thing in contemporary America because it has been so long since a major American city has been run by a corrupt Republican machine. Um, I think Philly was for a while. Um, there are probably a couple places in the Midwest that were. Um, there probably are a couple now. Uh, you know, the problem is just like, you know, once you hit the upper reaches of a big city, you know, uh, label category, odds of you being a um, Republican-run, you know, government just plummet. Uh, because, you know, the Democratic Party is an urban party and the Republican Party, for the most part, is not. And um, but, you know, just going back to like, you know, my memories of pre Giuliani New York. Um, you know, one of the things that was a secret to Giuliani's success um, had less to do. I mean, yeah, he had he was at policy positions informed by James Q. Wilson and George Kelling and the whole broken window school and all of that stuff. That's all great. Right. But one of the reasons why he could turn around New York is because he was just from another party. And, you know, it's very difficult for Democrats to reform democratic machines because you just have too many allies in your own administration, in your own campaign, if not yourself, who will be compromised if you actually try to implement serious reforms. You'll piss off your donors, you'll piss off your campaign workers, you'll be thrown under, you know, you'll be sabotaged by people who work for you. Um, it is just really, really hard when you have um, one party control to reform governance in a big city from within the same party. And so, like, I remember, you know, Julian, in the, they've been trying to get the mob out of the Fulton Fish Market, I think, for like 130 years. And Giuliani did it in a weekend just because, um, you know, and I can't remember if he did it when he was, you know, the U.S. attorney or whether he was mayor. It doesn't matter. The principle holds is that because as a Republican, he didn't have to tip off all of the Democrats who were in the pay of the mob or skimming from the mob or the mob related unions or whatever, not because Democrats are necessarily more corrupt than Republicans. It's just because they'd been, they'd been the guys in power to collect the bribes for so long. And when you, when you can just, when you can switch political machines, um, all of a sudden the, those complicated ties of, of loyalty and back scratching and this is the way we've always done it just are not the impediment that they were. So like if I were, even if I were a hardcore, serious San Francisco liberal, which I think everyone knows I am not, I'd still probably vote for the Republicans in San Francisco just to clean out people who have been around so long. They can't, it's like that guy in the matrix who, doesn't even see the numbers when he's looking at the code anymore. He just sees blonde, brunette, whatever. So many of these people have been intergenerationally in power um, that they don't even see the rent seeking and graft um, and corruption because this is just how it's done. And um, that kind of old fashioned uh, sclerosis and corruption, I think explains a lot of the problems in these cities as much as in some cases as much as the, the more abstract stuff that that 
that Schellenberger and I were talking about. Um, that stuff might explain like the press and the donors who let the government get away with a lot of this stuff. But um, um, I think that the, the, you know, and like, and there's an overlap in the Venn diagram, right? You know, in the book, he goes, he explains a lot about, you know, these, these bureaucracies and related foundations and contractors who work in the homelessness space. Um, how, you know, like a lot of war on poverty types a generation earlier, um, their their chief business is to stay in business. And so they don't talk about like ending homelessness because that's, you know, ending your, not, not necessarily your customer base, but your, 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 your mission, uh, you know, rationale. Um, and so I could see how like the two things overlap where you have people who are like, uh, ideologically committed, progressive, we're going to, you know, kumbaya types, but you also have people getting rich off of the kumbaya types or getting votes from the kumbaya types. And, um, anyway, I meant to talk about that with him and I didn't, uh, the other podcast this week was with Ed Carr of the economist. And, um, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying how a, it was great, but B, I wish you go more into this or more into that. And I agree. And maybe we'll have them back on and we'll do, do deeper dive. I think a lot of people like me are getting a little tired of talking about COVID, but I really wanted to cover this point about how the U S conversation about COVID is so parochial. And I, and I think we kind of checked that box, but, um, I'm sure there will be opportunities down the road to do so again. Um, Anyway, that's all I got. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope everybody has a great weekend. And um, if you haven't become a member of the dispatch yet, please do, or please consider it. Um, you know, we were putting together I had a, a budget meeting yesterday and, um, and, you know, everything just gets easier to do great and new things. Um, the more uh, we have paid members of the dispatch community. So if you can get one for, as a gift for somebody, if you, um, you know, if you get value out of these podcasts and, um, think they're worth a little extra, you know, I'm not, I don't have a Patreon account. All I ask is that maybe you give a try at becoming a subscriber and to the dispatch. And, um, and we've got some, you know, I know I keep saying this, but it's true. We got some, you know, member perks coming down the pike pretty soon. Um, that I think some people would want to be part of. So with that, uh, thanks again to everybody. I really appreciate uh, the support and the feedback. And sorry if I sounded a little too ranty at times. And I'll see you next time. ladies at a deli um okay let's go support for this podcast and the following message come from corient corient provides wealth management services centered around you they focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully preserve their wealth and provide for the people causes and communities they care about as one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the u.s corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.